We read this morning from Exodus chapter 20, where we have recorded the commandments, the Ten Commandments, as they're usually described, or the Decalogue, or the Ten Words. It is a fact that in the Pentateuch, the law, the moral law of God, the Ten Commandments, is repeated largely in the book of Deuteronomy. And you can see those words in Deuteronomy chapter 5 that are pretty much a replica of what you read in Exodus chapter 20. The whole subject of the law of God is really uppermost in the Pentateuch. We've been studying these first five books of Moses for some time. And certainly the portion that we've read from today is pivotal in the whole of Scripture. When we were introducing the Pentateuch, we said that Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy are not only foundational to the Old Testament, but they're foundational to the whole of Scripture. And you have so many things that are mentioned, for example, for the first time in those books. And that would be obvious, since they're at the beginning of the Bible. You have Genesis, which is really a book of beginnings. And there's so many things that are mentioned for the very first time in the book of Genesis. But the portion of scripture we've read from today, Exodus 20, contains the Ten Commandments. Now the Ten Commandments are always relevant to the people of God. There are some who will teach otherwise. And I think that's no surprise therefore that we have lawlessness, not just in our society, but even in many aspects of church life. Lawlessness has engulfed our society today. And I think that's clearly evident to all those who are willing to see it. There's a prevailing spirit in the world today, which is one of the casting off of all restraints, the despising of all authority, and it has resulted in a malaise that has set in in our world, a disease, if you like, that's engulfed our society, and all under the guise of personal freedom. Now, I believe in personal freedom, and I believe that where the gospel prevails in a nation, freedom always follows. And the history of this nation proves that. But the spirit that is abroad today is very similar, I think, to that which prevailed in the days of the judges. If you read the very last verse of the book of Judges, Judges 21 and verse 25, it kind of summarizes that society. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Eyes. In other words, there was no authority. There was no one to say this is how things should be. Everybody just did their own thing. Now, if you compare that with the words of the psalm, uh, the second psalm, you have that spirit uh, that is referenced in Psalm number 2, verses 2 and 3. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, 
Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. Basically, you have here a prophecy that was fulfilled in Herod and others in the days of Christ. These verses were actually referenced in the book of Acts because they were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. That's what the word anointed signifies. But here's what they said. Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. In other words, any restraints that they would place upon us, we're not going to have it. And of course, that's a mark of the last days. Lawlessness. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, in speaking of the spirit of Antichrist, says this. Really interesting words. Second Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 7. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. Now, what does that mean? The mystery of iniquity. Well, the Greek word, the Greek word for iniquity here is anomos, which means literally no law. The mystery of no law. In other words, the mystery of lawlessness. That is a spirit that God tells us works with more and more energy as the end time approaches. A spirit of lawlessness. And is that not manifest in our world today? Rebellion against law and order. It used to be that young people were brought up with a basic respect for the things of God in many cases and certainly for the laws of the land when I was a little boy we were afraid of policemen I mean we don't say anything back to a policeman we were afraid to because of what might happen to us we were taught to respect authority we weren't to be sassy and speak back to our teachers at school we weren't to do that with our parents we were not to be manifesting a lack of respect. We were taught basic respect. But I think there has been a tremendous decline in that. And now there's a questioning all the time, even not just among the young but older, a questioning of of everything. A lawless spirit that is abroad. And I don't say that we're not to question, for example, a policy of government that's not fair or it's not just. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about basic laws that people don't want to obey. People running red lights. People running stoplights. People who just don't want to do what they're told in any way, shape or form. Some of you will be old enough to remember those days when you could leave your doors open of your house. That's, that's a fact. And Whether it be the doors of your house or the doors of your car, leaving the windows of your car rolled down, you can remember those days. I remember visiting back, oh, probably 35 years ago, must be, in Ohio. I was with a preacher out there, and I remember coming out of a restaurant with him, and every single car, every single car that I saw in that parking lot had its windows rolled down. Every window was open. And nobody was stealing cars and making off with their stuff. It just wasn't happening. 
But of course, that's not the case today. This is the day of the Brinks security system. People used to respect human life, not today, to the same degree. We now have abortion on demand. We have entire political parties that are signed up to not only allowing for abortion, but promoting it and seeking to punish those who would stop the practice of it. A daily holocaust is taking place in our society. There's the whole specter of euthanasia. That's a very fancy word for killing people who are no longer viable. Old people or disabled people. The kind of thing that the Nazis did in the Second World War. That's now happening even in some of the states in the Union. Not that many years ago, not only would you not have heard of, but you never would have dreamed of Two men or two women wanting to get married to one another. Same-sex marriage. It was unheard of. It used to be that the only pride parade in the United States was one that involved the military. When men were returning from victorious military campaigns. Now we have the breakdown of the family unit. We have widespread adultery of people living together, bearing children out of wedlock. I saw a recent poll or a recent statistic where in Great Britain more children are born out of wedlock now than to those that are married. All of these things are testament to what I just said. There's an increasing spirit of lawlessness. We live in a day of relativism. The philosophy which tells us there are no moral absolutes. And so people are able to call good evil and evil good. They put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Now, what is taking place in our culture, and I'm referring mostly to the Western world, because actually there are countries that we look upon in the West as being less civilized. We call them third world countries. And some of them have got laws that are more in keeping with the scriptures than our own. Some of the African countries, for example, have still on the statute books outlawed same-sex marriage and same-sex relationships. They're not afraid to stand up for it. But we have overthrown God's law in our culture. And what is taking place in the Western world, especially, will never be able to be properly assessed or understood unless it's seen in the light of God's great, holy, unchanging law. God's moral code that we know of as the Ten Commandments. Someone said, Without a renewed emphasis on God's law, our nation will remain like a ship at sea without a rudder. It will be like a man lost in the wilderness without a compass. And Christians, above all people, must be clear on this point. And I think it is important to make this point today. It's not so many years ago that you could assume that virtually... Everybody who attended an evangelical Christian church, at least, would be familiar with the commandments and could repeat them off by heart. And now you have a situation where a lot of folks not only couldn't recite the Ten Commandments, 
they'd be hard pressed to tell you which part of the Bible they're found in. You don't hear too many sermons, do you, on the Ten Commandments? They, they used to be commonplace in evangelical churches. In fact, in the old days of the Puritans, they had two services on a Sunday. They called it the morning service and the afternoon service. In the morning service, they preached on the law. In the afternoon service, they preached on the gospel. You can look it up. You can find that for yourself. There were those who were noted for their law preaching as well as their gospel preaching. Because you can't have one without the other. But today, as someone said, not only have the commandments been expelled from our day schools and from our courthouses, but they have effectively been consigned to the back room in our churches. Someone said recently, I don't know where they got the statistic from, but less than 1% of all church members could recite the Ten Commandments. That's pretty sad. You know, at the time of the Protestant Reformation, one of the common practices instituted by the Protestant Reformers was the, the displaying of the Ten Commandments in a prominent place in the church. You would come in through the foyer and there would be the Ten Commandments. And of course that used to be the case in the courthouses of our land as well. Why was that? Why did they do that? Well they did that because they wanted God's moral law, the Ten Commandments, to always be before the minds of the people. The Puritans in England and in America gave such emphasis to the commandments in their preaching and teaching, calling upon the people in days of spiritual darkness to return to God's law. And one of them, Samuel Bolton, used to say, the sharp needle of the law makes way for the scarlet thread of the gospel. Or maybe it was the golden thread of the gospel. Now, this is something for us to think about. When I was a child, and that's a long time ago now, of course, but children, in many cases, were taught the Ten Commandments before they ever learned John 3.16. Now, why would that be? Why would you want to learn the commandments before you learn John 3.16? Because John 3.16 doesn't really have any meaning and purpose without the commandments. A missionary to the Native Americans, John Eliot, up in New England, had a desire to see those peoples brought to salvation through Christ. But do you know that his first translation to the Indians from Scripture was not the New Testament, it was the Ten Commandments? Now why would he do that? Would he do that so that they might be saved by trying to keep God's law? No. He did that to show them that they needed to be saved. They needed to see that they were lawbreakers. They needed to see that there was a holy God who had a perfect law. And they needed to have, therefore, a great lawkeeper to be their substitute and saviour. You see, John Eliot believed, as the Apostle Paul did, that the law is our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. The schoolmaster or the schoolmistress doesn't teach to draw attention to themselves. The school teacher teaches 
so that you will learn what they're teaching. And if we want to get people to Christ, we need to be using that which will lead them to Christ. You just take the Ten Commandments in turn, as they are here in Exodus 20. This is a very simple exercise. Just look at each commandment in turn and think about it. Verse 3 of Exodus 20, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Now what does that mean? Does that mean it's okay to have other gods as long as you have God first? Then you can have these other gods. No, that's not what it means. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. It literally means, Thou shalt have no other gods before my face. In other words, I will not put up with the worship of any other god. So that's the first thing. There is only one God, and we must worship that one God. The second commandment, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, and all the words that are connected with that. This is God telling us, not only is he the only one to be worshipped, but he is to be worshipped in a particular way. You can't make images of God and bow down to that and pretend in your mind that you're getting an image of God so that you can worship him. That'll better help your devotion. God forbids that. We're not to do that. We're to worship him by faith. So God's telling us here, not only are we to worship only him, but we're to worship him in the way that he has prescribed. And then there's the next commandment. Verse 7. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. What does that mean? Well, it doesn't just mean OMG, as people would put on their shorthand on the computer and social messaging. You shouldn't be using that, by the way, because it doesn't mean what you might think it means. It's taking the Lord's name in vain. But that's not the only way in which we take the Lord's name in vain, to use his, his name as a swear word or as a curse word. We also take the Lord's name in vain when we don't worship him with all of our hearts. When we draw near to him with our lips, but our hearts are far from him, and we're invoking the name of the Lord, but we're not really worshipping him as we should. That's taking the Lord's name in vain. And then we come to the next one, which is in verse 8 down to verse 11. That's the longest one as far as the English is concerned. The most words are taken up. It's very important. The Lord It shows us that this is a creation ordinance. It was something that was set up at creation. And it's for all men everywhere for all time. Remember, don't forget, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. People need to understand that this is a different day. But for most now in corporate America, it's not a different day. A lot of companies now just operate on a rolling system of whatever it is, four days off, and or four days on and three off, or whatever, however they do it. And it, sometimes it just involves a Sunday where you don't get any extra money. That happens because people have decided that the seven-day week is the way forward. You go on through the commandments. Honor thy father and thy mother. Self-explanatory, giving basic respect to our parents. And the promise of God is attached to it. Paul repeats it in Ephesians chapter 6. It is the first commandment with promise. For people who tell you that the law doesn't have any 
effect today. It's not for Christians. I wonder why Paul was using it then in Ephesians chapter 6 in teaching children to obey their parents. That's the law. And then we have these. Thou shalt not kill. It means thou shalt do no murder. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. And there are all sorts of ways in which these commandments can be broken that are not just by the actual act. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor, telling lies or deceiving people deliberately. And then thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. Covetousness is the one sin that encompasses all of the other commandments. When you break the tenth commandment, you break them all. Because there's a sense in which covetousness is involved in every one of those breaches of the Ten Commandments. In Scotland, in the town of Dumfries, there was a man called John Patton. He went as a missionary to a place that's now called Vanuatu. It's in the New Hebrides, South Sea Islands. He went there to reach the cannibal peoples. He was a wonderful missionary. Within a year of him being there, his wife and I think their baby had died. He buried them himself and he had to lie by the grave keeping vigil lest the cannibals would come and dig up his family and eat them. But he stayed there and preached the word to those people and saw a wonderful work done. But you know what he taught the cannibal peoples in Vanuatu first? The Ten Commandments. You see, men will never want a relationship with God until they realize why they're not in a relationship with God. The law is so important in making people understand that. It's our schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. It shows us our need of a Savior. We've broken God's commandments. A man called Zacharias Ursinus was charged by Frederick the Elector of Heidelberg in Germany with the writing of a catechism, became known as the Heidelberg Catechism. And this happened, of course, about five centuries almost ago. It was for the systematic study of Bible doctrine and teachings. Ursinus divided the Heidelberg Catechism into 129 questions in 52 lessons. But the third question, just getting into the catechism, is Whence knowest thou thy misery? And the answer is simply this, out of the law of God. What does that mean? It means how do you know that you're a sinner? How do you know that you need a saviour? How are you going to know that you need the gospel? And the power of the gospel in your life? Out of the law of God. So that begs the question, why is it in so many 21st century churches, and I'm talking about churches that profess to believe the Bible, evangelical churches, not apostate churches, we don't expect truth in those places. We don't expect to hear the truth from liberal ministers. But I'm talking about those that profess to be Bible-believing of whatever denomination. How is it? That in all of that evangelicalism, we see that the Ten Commandments are practically ignored. 
And I'll tell you worse than that, in some cases, they're actually rejected as having any relevance for the day in which we live. There are some people who call themselves New Calvinists. Part of the New Calvinist movement, it's a broad church, I understand that, not everybody in it is the same. But part of that is a philosophy that the Sabbath day no longer applies in the New Testament. There's a lawlessness involved there. Now you know when something happens, like happened to Judge Roy Moore in Alabama, where, you remember he had the fight with the authorities over the Ten Commandments, he wanted them in his courtroom, and the whole thing ended up in a a whole big furore, because the liberals wanted the Ten Commandments removed from the courtroom, and they got their way. There were many people in America who were rightly outraged by that. But many of those same people who were annoyed at the removal of the Ten Commandments from the courthouse themselves don't believe that the commandments have any relevance for their lives. That statement of God's moral law doesn't mean a whole lot to them. Now, if there was ever a time when the law of God needed to be preached, it's today. You and I need to hear God's law. We need to read God's law. We need to think about God's law. Because it has a message that we need to heed. And if you think that the failure to preach on the Ten Commandments is of no consequence, I beg to differ. It's had devastating consequences, not only for our society at large, but within the confines of the professing Christian church. A study was done some time ago, I forget who was the person involved, may have been Barna in that uh, survey that he took. But anyway, it was a study of young people in evangelical churches in the U.S. And this study, done within the last 25 years, revealed that in one three-month period, listen to this, in one three-month period, two-thirds of those young people in these evangelical churches had lied to their parents. 36% of them had cheated in examinations in school. 55% of the teenagers had engaged in some form of sexual activity. And 20% of them, one-fifth, had attempted to hurt someone physically. Now that's shocking, is it not? It shows again the lawless spirit of the age that has infected much of the church. And for that reason I say there does need to be a recovery of the truth of God's holy law in the church. We're studying the Pentateuch at the moment. And it's interesting that the Pentateuch itself, the five books of Moses, are called by the Lord Jesus Christ, the law of Moses. Did you notice that? There are a number of different meanings of the word law in the scripture. And by the way, that's one of the difficulties that we can find among Christians as regards their understanding of the subject. Because the subject of the law 
becomes a bit confusing for some because of the different usages of the word law itself. It is used, no doubt, in many different ways in the Bible. Sometimes, you know, the word law refers to the whole Bible. Remember in the Psalms it says, Oh, how love I thy law. David is not saying, Oh, I love the five books of Moses and you can have the rest. No, he's saying that he loves God's word as as a whole. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. That's another instance where it's talking about the whole of the Bible. It's not just talking about the five books of Moses. So the law sometimes means the whole Bible. But sometimes the law does mean the Pentateuch. It does mean the first five books of the Bible. And sometimes when the word law is used, it's referring to the ceremonial system. The sacrifices and the offerings and so on. Sometimes it's referring to the civil or the judicial code, which was peculiar to Israel as a theocracy, a nation under God. They had laws, and no doubt many of our laws, our system of jurisprudence, is based upon a lot of this, the Judeo-Christian influence people talk about. It's really the Bible that has informed the making of our laws, at least originally, that was true. But there are different meanings of the word law, in these expressions that you find in your Bible, such as the law of Moses, or the law of Christ. Paul even talks about the law of sin, and he talks about the law of love. And so it can make it difficult sometimes to exegete texts of Scripture accurately. I mentioned Samuel Bolton there a few minutes ago, the man who said that the, the sharp needle of the law makes way for the golden thread of the gospel. And he was a 17th century scholar. He was so highly esteemed by his peers that they chose him to be one of the Westminster divines, one of those that drew up the Westminster Confession of Faith. They met in 1643 to introduce what was effectively a second reformation in English Christianity. Samuel Bolton was a very successful minister in churches in London, England, And he later became vice-chancellor of Cambridge University. Very brilliant man. But he wrote a little volume that I have at home called The The True Bounds of Christian Freedom. And in that book, he addresses what is called the antinomian controversy that was rife in his day. And so he felt it important to speak about God's law. And so he says this about the scriptural usages of the word law. First of all, what is meant by the word law? Samuel Bolton said, I answer the word which is frequently used for the law in the Old Testament is Torah. You may have heard that, the Torah, the law. And it's actually derived from another Hebrew word which means to throw darts. Isn't that interesting? And it came to signify Uh, to teach or to instruct or to admonish, like, like throwing darts. And hence it's used for any doctrine or any instruction which teaches or informs or directs us. For example, in Proverbs 13, 14 it says, The law of the wise is a fountain of life to depart from the snares of death. So law here is taken in a larger sense for any doctrine or any direction that proceeds from the wise. Now you come to the New Testament. The word law is derived from a, another word, it's a Greek word, which signifies to distribute. 
Because that's what the law does. The law distributes or it renders to God and to men what is their due. This word law, in its natural signification in both testaments, signifies any doctrine, instruction, law, ordinance, or statute, divine or human, which teaches, directs, commands, or binds men to any duty which they owe to God or man. And then this word law is used in different senses in Scripture. Samuel Bolton brought out some of these various senses. I don't want to go into all of these. It would take too much time. But there are a few that he calls the chief of these senses. For example, the word law is sometimes taken for the scriptures of the Old Testament. The books of Moses, the Pentateuch, the Psalms and the prophets. It's called the law. That's how the Jews understood it when you read John 12, verse 34. Here's what they said. We have heard out of the law that Christ abideth forever. They were talking about the the Old Testament. And there are other scriptures that speak in this way. Paul in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 21 says, In the law it is written. Then he repeats some words that are found in Isaiah chapter 28. So, when he says it's written in the law, he means the Old Testament. But then the term law is sometimes used, as I've already indicated, as meaning the whole of the Word of God. And that includes all of its precepts and all of its promises, such as the the verse I quoted, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The law is something that commands us, but it's not able to give us any grace. And so... We need Christ. The law is that which teaches us our need of Christ. We've said that the law sometimes is taken for the Pentateuch. There are scriptures that speak to that. I won't get into all of those. But you'll see in the New Testament this phraseology in the law of Moses. The law is used for the teaching, what we would call pedagogy, of Moses. As in John 5.46, had you believed Moses, Jesus said, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. So the teaching there is the law. And then sometimes the word law is used in a very restricted sense, for the moral law only. That is to say the Ten Commandments, what we call the Decalogue. The moral law of God. Sometimes the word law refers to the ceremonial law. Sometimes the word law refers to all the laws, moral, ceremonial, and judicial. As in John 1.17, the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. So, there are these different usages of the word. Now, there are people who will deny any distinction in the law between moral, ceremonial, and civil. They'll just tell you the whole of the law is in view. The whole of the law has to be applied. Some of these people will call themselves dominionists or reconstructionists. Uh, This movement was largely begun by a man called Rushduni. And I'm telling you that the teaching that is done by those who are in the reconstructionist movement, of course it's predicated on one form of eschatology, 
which is post-millennialism. So if post-millennialism is not true, that whole system comes falling down. But having said that, there are those within that particular orbit who will tell you that there's no distinction to be made between moral, ceremonial and civil law. And they'll tell you that the whole of the law needs to be applied today in our society. So my challenge to someone like that would be, well, do you believe then that a child who's insolent against his parents should be taken out and stoned to death? Because that's what was part of the civil law of Israel. And there are other examples that I could give that will show that this kind of view is not right and certainly will not be applied in the day in which we live. But it is necessary for us to make this distinction as we read our Bibles between the moral law, that's the Ten Commandments, the ceremonial law, which had to do with ceremonial Sabbaths and feast days and so on, and the civil law, which had to do with the ordering of Israelite lives from day to day, orders about various sexual crimes and other crimes that were involving stealing or people's property, all of that came under the civil code. Now, if someone said to me, the whole of the law is based upon the Ten Commandments, I can agree with that. Yes, the ceremonial law and the civil law of Israel definitely have their basis in the moral law. But they're not the moral law. There are differences. And when you fail to make, when preachers fail to make clear and proper distinctions between these three, it always leads in one of two directions. It either leads to legalism or antinomianism, which is a word that comes from the thought of no law or against law. So you've got these two extremes. Legalism, which ultimately is a system of salvation by works, or antinomianism, which means that there's no law at all, no restrictions whatsoever. Now, all of the great historic creeds, the confessions of faith, the Savoy Declaration of the Congregationalists, the Westminster Confession of Faith of Presbyterians, the Baptist Confession of 1789, and various confessions of faith like this, the New Hampshire Confession of Faith, all these great creeds, the Heidelberg Catechism, all the rest of it, they all teach that there are divisions in the law between ceremonial, civil and moral codes. Now someone will say to me, well, now, the Bible doesn't use these words to divide the law, does it? I've heard the same argument from the so-called Jehovah's Witnesses. When you tell them that you're Trinitarian, that you believe in the triune God, you believe that God is a Trinity, one of the first things they'll say to you is, the word Trinity is not in the Bible. The word Trinity doesn't appear in the Bible. Well, the term may not appear, but the truth does. The truth does, and the same is true for this. The Bible doesn't use three words to divide the law, but we discover these distinct uses of the term law as we bring all of the scriptures to bear on the subject. And so you look at the laws given at Sinai. You read about it in the book of Exodus. We haven't time to go into all those verses, obviously. But we will learn that some of the laws pertained to procedures in worship. 
They didn't have anything to do with ethical conduct. They were strictly to do with how worship was to be engaged in, how the altar was to be made, what was to be done in terms of the sacrifices, the various regulations associated with that. That was part of the ceremonial law. Other laws then, as you read them in the the same passage of scripture in Exodus and so on, they stipulated the civil duties of Israel as a theocratic nation. They showed what the relationship of the people was to God. They were not binding on the Gentile nations. These were laws for Israel. That's how God set them up. But still other things were the creator's moral mandates for the conduct of all his creatures. Take the Sabbath, for example. People have often said, some of them have said it to me, oh, the Sabbath, that was a whole, that was a Jewish thing. No, it wasn't. Jesus didn't say the Sabbath was made for Israel. He didn't say the Sabbath was made for the Jews. He said the Sabbath was made for man. And man for the Sabbath. Man, mankind. Look at the commandment itself in Exodus 20. What does the Lord reference there as the reason why we keep a day of worship? For, because in six days the Lord made heaven and earth. He's going back to creation. This is well before there was a nation of Israel. The Sabbath commandment was in force before Moses ever wrote it down on stone. Or God wrote it on stone for him. So you have these moral laws that are eternal and unchangeable. And when we think about God's law, we realize that there are differences in the terminology, there are differences in the usages of the word. But one thing we do understand is that when you talk about the law in general, whether you're talking about the civil law, the ceremonial law, or the Ten Commandments, which is the moral law of God for all time, All of it shows us our need of a saviour. For example, you see the ceremonial system. What was it all about? What was the ceremonial law for? Why have all these sacrifices described in Leviticus, the first seven chapters, talking about the burnt offering and the peace offering and the trespass offering, all these various offerings. What was that all about? It was all pointing the people of Israel in one direction. And that was in the direction of the Lamb of God who was yet to come. You take the daily offerings that were made. This is under the ceremonial law. A lamb in the morning, a lamb in the evening. What was that all about? John the Baptist comes along when Jesus is walking and he says, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. That little lamb that was killed, that kid by Abel and offered up to God. It was a picture of Christ. All of these other offerings under the ceremonial law, they were pictures of Christ. And there's no doubt that the Old Testament saints, they saw the difference in the predictions of the coming sufferings of Christ that were given in ceremonial terms. And I could show you various scriptures that speak of this. They show to us the temporary character of the ceremonial law. The ceremonial law was abrogated at Calvary when the real sacrifice was offered once and for all. They didn't need to keep on offering the sacrifices under the ceremonial law. 
Hebrews chapter 10 deals with that. If those offerings made the comers thereunto perfect, then would they not cease to have been offered. In other words, if someone brought a beast and that animal's offering made all the people perfect once and for all, there would have been no more animals offered. But under the ceremonial system, more and more animals were offered all the time. Thousands of them. Why? Because they had to keep on depicting what was going to happen when Christ came. But when Christ came, he finished all of that. So when we're considering the law of God, and the subject of the law of God, we have to always keep the distinctions before us. Discern the differences between the ceremonial law, which pertained to the worship of Israel and which prefigured Christ, the civil or the judicial laws which detailed the duties of the people as a nation, and the moral law, the Ten Commandments, by which the Creator governs the moral conduct of His creatures for all times. I started out by saying that the law is our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. That's really taken from Galatians 3.24. It used to be that when you crossed your schoolmaster, you suffered punishment. I remember that very well. When I went to school, before they became soft, you either got a verbal lashing, which wasn't so bad, that never hurt, or you got what in our case was called the cane, a piece of bamboo. We had a teacher in school, and that piece of bamboo cane, he had taped on both ends with black electrical tape. And he christened that cane Black Jake. And he used to tell the boys in our class who needed it, any more of that nonsense and Black Jake's coming out of the cupboard. So he knew to do what was right. See, the, the, the schoolmaster... The schoolmaster is there as an authority to teach you. Now you cross the schoolmaster, which is God's law, and punishment follows. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. The wages of sin is death. You read the Ten Commandments and you realize that breaking those commandments, you are in breach of God's law, you're then liable to God's punishment. You need a saviour. As a schoolmaster, the law instructs us. One of the first things that a child in school learns is how little he or she knows in relation to the teacher. I know there are some children who think they know it all, but they soon find out they don't. And one of the first things that God teaches us by his law, his schoolmaster, is how poor we are in righteousness when compared to God's perfect law. Now, why did God give us a law when he knew that we could not keep it perfectly? Because the Lord didn't give us the law as a means of salvation. He gave it to us as a means of showing us our need of salvation. And that's why Paul could say in Romans 3.20, By the law is the knowledge of sin. You know how you know you're a sinner? Because God teaches you that when you look at the law as a mirror and you examine yourself in the light of it. When you're confronted with God's holy law in the Ten Commandments and your inability to keep that law perfectly, you learn that you're a sinner in God's sight and that you need God's salvation. 
Oh, how many there are who have the mistaken notion that to have God's salvation, they have to work for it by doing good deeds in accordance with God's law. But the law cannot save. The law merely shows us our need to be saved. The law is our schoolmaster to lead us to the only one who can save, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. And I trust today that we know him, that we've come to him, that we're not going to stop short by just looking at the schoolmaster and not coming to the one to whom the schoolmaster points, even our blessed Saviour. The one who said, I delight to do thy will, O my God, yea, thy law is within my heart. That's Christ. That's who we need. And I trust that he is your Saviour today.